patrons heard this episode ad-free first. You can become a patron too by heading over to patreon.com slash the Murder Diaries pod. Welcome to the Murder Diaries. I'm Natalie. And I'm Paige. There are 700,000 indigenous people in the state of California. That's around 1.8% of the state's total population. It's estimated that since 1990, there have been over 1,700 cases of violent crime against California's indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit individuals. This doesn't count the people who were classified as white or whose death or disappearance was suspicious, but viewed as an accident. According to the nonprofit Sovereign Bodies Institute, less than 9% of the cases of murdered indigenous women are solved. Compared to California's rate of 60%, this means that cases of murdered indigenous people are seven times less likely than other cases to be solved. To some people, these numbers may come across as a huge shock. To others, they confirm what they already know, that in North America, indigenous women go missing and are murdered at an alarming rate compared to women of other ethnicities. For a long time, this information was prevalent only within Native American communities and tribes. But over the last several years, as the crime rate rose, voices crying for justice have finally captured national attention. Today, we are discussing the case of a missing Indigenous woman, whose life paints a heartbreaking picture of what happens when mental health struggles and the missing and murdered Indigenous women crisis overlap. Her name is Emily Risling. This is her story. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Emily Renee Risling was born on February 19, 1989, to parents Gary and Judy Risling. She has a sister named Mary and was raised in Northern California. Her family lived on California's coastline near the city of Arcata. Emily is Native American and is able to trace her ancestry back to three different Native American tribes in Northern California. Her family are enrolled members of the Hoopa Valley tribe and are very prominent within the tribe. In fact, her father Gary was the wildland fire chief of the Hoopa Valley Reservation for some time. The Hoopa Valley tribe were originally known just as the Hoopa, but called themselves Natanuqua, which means people of the place where the trails return. In or around the year 1000, the Hoopa people settled in the Hoopa Valley in California, eventually leading to their name being synonymous with Hoopa Valley. The Hoopa Valley tribe managed to remain largely untouched by colonizers until around 1849 after the California Gold Rush. The Hoopa Valley Reservation was created by the United States government in 1864 and is one of the largest reservations in California. Today, the Hoopa Valley Reservation is shared by the Hoopa, Karuk, Cholula, Yurok, Wilka, and other Native American tribes. Growing up, Emily was taught the importance of dance in her culture. Dance is extremely important in the Hoopa Valley tribe, and there are several intricate dances that are viewed as a way to connect tribal members to the traditions of their ancestors and to generations past. These dances are performed at world renewal ceremonies, which are held for 10 days in late summer, early fall. Emily was taught these dances and was expected to one day lead the dances. Her family was known as a dance family within the tribe, a distinction that occurs when a family owns an entire set of dance regalia and doesn't have to borrow anything. This prestige connects to a larger historical custom in Hoopa society, in which status and leadership was achieved through wealth or inheritable goods, 
such as the pieces worn during a ceremonial dance. Emily took her hoopa duties very seriously and was proud of her Native American heritage. Emily would sing and dance in traditional ceremonies and once even participated in a march in Washington, D.C. as a teenager to celebrate the opening of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. The celebration drew national attention, and Emily was even featured on the front page of the Washington Post. She was wearing a Karuuk dress of dried bared grass, a woman's basket cap, and a white leather sash with woodpecker scalps. When she was 15, she was the vice president of the Native American Club at her high school and was quoted as saying, quote, my culture is really important to me. That's the way I've been raised. In addition to her dedication to the Hoopa Valley tribe and her family, Emily thrived in school. She had a lot of friends, was class president, and was a straight-A student. She achieved so much academic success that she received a $20,000 college scholarship, which she then used to attend the University of Oregon. In 2014, Emily graduated with a degree in political science. Her mother, Judy, told the LA Times, she was really a mover and a shaker. And according to CBS News Bay Area, those who knew her described her as a ray of light, full of joy, so much love, and so much potential. While in college, Emily discovered that she was pregnant. And as a result, she went back home to have her baby, a little boy she named David. It's unclear how long of a break Emily took from college, but Eventually, she received her degree and got a job as a welfare caseworker back in California. As part of her job, Emily worked with Native American mothers who were dealing with domestic violence, incarceration, and addiction. Judy told the LA Times, I think she had a lot of empathy for people. It's hard for me to even understand how Emily was so active, involved, happy, a loving, caring person to how things ended for her. At some point, Emily applied to graduate school and was accepted into a master's program. She was also an assistant coach for one of her son's t-ball teams and regularly took him to swim lessons. Emily was on a path towards great success. Unfortunately, things wouldn't always be so easy. In 2019, Emily began displaying signs of mental health struggles. Her family noticed changes in her behavior and she was repeatedly late for work, which was unusual for her. It was also around this time that she began struggling with drug dependency and was in a violent and abusive relationship. Emily had started dating an indigenous man and the relationship quickly became physically abusive. Judy believed that her daughter attempted to change and save this man, but ultimately it was Emily who suffered. At this time, Emily's son was living with her parents, having been taken away from Emily when he was five. In 2020, Emily gave birth to a baby girl, but she too was sent to live with her grandparents. That's because after the birth of her daughter, Emily's behavior grew more erratic and her mental health struggles were more pronounced. Her parents believed that Emily could have been struggling with postpartum psychosis. Here's a little bit about postpartum psychosis for those who are unfamiliar. It's described by the Cleveland Clinic as a mental health emergency. According to the hospital's website, postpartum psychosis affects a person's sense of reality, causing hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, or other behavior changes. Postpartum psychosis is somewhat rare, but can be extremely dangerous. There's often a great risk of harm to the person suffering from postpartum psychosis and to the person's newborn child. The most common treatments for postpartum psychosis are medication and electroconvulsive therapy, in which a small electrical current is sent into the brain intended to make changes in brain activity. 
Postpartum psychosis is especially prevalent in people with a history of mental health conditions, such as in Emily's case. There are typically three categories that symptoms fall into, depressive symptoms, manic symptoms, and atypical mixed symptoms. Based on the information available to us, it appears that Emily could have been suffering from atypical mixed symptoms, which include disorganized speaking or behavior, disorientation or confusion, disturbance of consciousness, which is where a person doesn't appear to be awake or isn't aware of activities or things taking place nearby. The list continues hallucinations or delusions, inappropriate comments, behaviors, or emotional displays. And lastly, catatonia or mutism, which is being totally silent. We're not medical professionals and there are no way trying to diagnose Emily. Just simply making an observation based on our research of postpartum psychosis and what Emily's family has described about her behavior. In addition to her mental health struggles and possible postpartum psychosis, Emily's family noticed that Emily was distancing herself from the native identity that she once valued so much. Her sister Mary told the Desert Sun that she noticed the change in her sister abruptly, like a light switched. Mary also said that that was her life. And when you let that go, when you don't have your kids, what are you? At some point, Emily was hospitalized, but wasn't treated for any sort of mental illness. And this wasn't the first time Emily was seen by a medical professional. At the request of her family, she saw a doctor and therapist, but wouldn't accept long-term treatment. Another problem was that the closest long-term mental health facility didn't have any openings and couldn't accept Emily as a patient. And on top of that, after one emergency room visit, Emily fled the hospital barefoot and wearing nothing but a hospital gown. According to the Associated Press, Emily had been seen wandering around naked on two different reservations in a small North Carolina town. In September 2021, Emily was arrested for arson. She had started a fire in a cemetery on the Hoopa Valley Reservation and was found dancing around the fire. Although distressed by her arrest, Emily's family hoped that this would be the catalyst for finally getting Emily the treatment she needed. Because resources were scarce in the area where Emily lived, her family hoped that law enforcement intervention would be able to help get her access to the services she needed. Unfortunately, this didn't happen. Because this was Emily's first arrest, the judge in her case released her from jail and didn't order any sort of mental health treatment. The Hoopa Valley Tribal Police Chief at the time, Bob Kane, had even testified at the hearing and detailed Emily's history of hospitalization and mental health struggles, but to no avail. The judge wouldn't do anything to help her. During the hearing, Emily mumbled and shouted that she didn't start the fire in the cemetery, but this didn't convince the judge either. The judge ordered Emily to appear in court in 12 days and then let her go. As expected, Emily's family wasn't pleased about this outcome. Mary told KLCC, quote, the amount of times my sister has been picked up over the years by the Humboldt County Sheriff, it's like, let's get her in trouble, but let's not help her. When police officers have a certain number of run-ins with a person and they go missing, they have this stigma over who this person was or who they thought she was, end quote. Emily's family isn't wrong. There is a history of law enforcement and the justice system having a strong stigma against mental health. This stigma manifests in several ways. As Emily's family expressed, people with mental illnesses aren't always taken seriously by police or are victimized within the system. They're also often viewed as untrustworthy or even dangerous. In the long run, this stigma does nothing but further harm people with mental health struggles who ultimately just need some extra help getting through the system. 
There are several organizations that are working to combat this stigma, including the United States Department of Justice. One way that this issue is being combated is through mental health courts. There are specialized courts for people suffering from mental illnesses that are designed to reduce recidivism and provide people with access to treatment, employment, and housing if necessary. Mental health diversion programs are also becoming more common in the justice system. These programs have the goal of helping people avoid jail through treatment or a mental health facility. According to a 2012 literature review from the Administration Office of the Courts, mental health courts and diversion programs have been highly successful. The report concludes that these programs succeed in getting participants to utilize the offered services, reducing recidivism, and saving money for state justice departments. Of course, this study is over a decade old, and it states that the programs aren't perfect, but many believe it's a step in the right direction for reducing the stigma of mental health in the justice system. These programs, however, don't exist everywhere. And as in Emily's case, they aren't always offered. A mental health court could have greatly helped Emily, and her family desperately hoped that someone would finally see what they saw. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. And a few weeks after Emily's arrest, her family's worst fear came true. Then on October 14th, 2021, Emily Risling went missing. She was last seen on the Yurok Reservation near a part of the reservation called Waitekpek, crossing the Pequon Bridge, which is located at the end of State Route 169. The Yurok Reservation is 85 square miles and the Pequon Bridge was right near a thick forest that runs along the Klamath River. The area the bridge is located in is described as being off the grid and even has the nickname End of Road because it's where the pavement road ends and the forest starts. The area as a whole isn't far from the Oregon border. Police believe that Emily hitchhiked to get to the bridge. On October 14th, a school bus was driving past the bridge and a child saw a naked woman standing there. This child happened to have a police officer as a father who, when told the story, thought that the naked woman was Emily due to her history of walking around naked. He went to the bridge the next day and looked in the area and along the nearby river, but didn't find Emily or anything pointing to her. It wasn't until October 16th, two days after the sighting of Emily on the bridge, that her family realized that she may be missing. The first public cry for help came from a cousin who, according to the LA Times, wrote on Facebook, if anyone has seen my little cousin Emily Risling, please let me know. She is not in her right mind. Two days after that, on October 18th, Emily was officially reported as a missing person. Once Emily was reported missing, several local law enforcement agencies joined together to search for her. Three different Native American tribes, the Yurok, Hoopa Valley, and the Karuk, worked with the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office to search the area, but they couldn't find Emily. The searches continued for an entire month, but nothing leading to Emily was ever found. The problem, however, was that a formal search was never launched. The Yurok Tribal Police cited lack of experience and difficult terrain as the reasoning for this. Instead, the Yurok and the Hoopa Valley Police and Humboldt County Sheriff's Office informally searched the Klamath River on boats and conducted land searches from cars. Missing persons flyers were hung up all over the area. The photo used in the flyer isn't a happy memory for her family. In the photo taken a few months before Emily disappeared, she's standing in her family's home and had just cut off her long brown hair with a pair of pruning shears. Her father, Gary, described the incident to the LA Times saying, I was standing by the dining room and she walks in and her hair just looks terrible. She's cut it all off. 
I looked at her and I grabbed my phone and I started taking pictures. When you go missing, I want to have something so I can show the police department. He then took pictures of her from several different angles. It's a bitter memory for Gary and Judy. Judy told the LA Times that she hates the picture because it reminds her how much her daughter was struggling in the months leading up to her disappearance. Emily's disappearance may have drawn local attention, but it didn't reach national headlines until April of 2022, six months after Emily disappeared. The new publicity was due to an article about her disappearance that the Associated Press published. In addition to drawing more eyes to the case, it created a renewed search effort in Northern California. People from all over the United States worked with local law enforcement to search for Emily. A Minnesota-based organization dedicated to finding missing people called the John Francis Foundation flew 30 people to California to search the Yurok Reservation in collaboration with the Yurok Tribal Police and the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office. In addition to these searchers, boats and cadaver dogs were used. But once again, nothing was found. Eventually, everyone returned home and the searches stopped. As the LA Times put it, the only sign of Risling at Pequon Bridge is a missing person flyer plastered on a post. Even though we hear this phrase far too often in the true crime world, to Emily's family, it really was like she vanished into thin air. Judy told CBS News Bay Area, I think the most heartbreaking thing is that you may never see that person's face again. We want to find Emily. It's really simple. We want to know what happened, where she is. Gary described the experience to the LA Times as being a living hell. All Emily's family has left of Emily are memories and questions. So many questions. Emily's son, David, might have the most questions. He asked his grandfather, Gary, what would happen if they couldn't find Emily? Gary told him that they will just have to keep looking. Emily's disappearance has also left her family with a very strong emotion, anger. They are frustrated with how local law enforcement has handled the case and feel as if Emily was given up on. According to Gary, the sheriff's office received several tips that they didn't follow up on. He also claims that more resources went towards finding other local missing persons rather than towards his daughter's case. He is quoted in the Desert Sun saying, I don't want to seem like I'm picking on him, but that effort is sure not put forth when it becomes a missing Indian woman. Law enforcement in the area, however, have struggles of their own. The county that Emily went missing from is the size of the state of Connecticut and is home to 11 different Native American tribes. As one could imagine, resources are spread thin and jurisdiction issues have become really complicated. That's exactly what happened in Emily's case. Emily went missing from the Yurok Reservation, but she's a member of the Hoopa Valley Tribe and was arrested on Hoopa Valley Reservation. This means that there are multiple different agencies that have a stake in her case. Because she went missing from the Yurok Reservation, they are in charge of Emily's case. But the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office has the power to declare the case cold and to call in federal resources. According to law, if a crime occurs on tribal land, the tribe has no authority over the investigation. It must be handled by the state. This is in accordance with the federal law known as Public Law 280. The law was passed in Congress in 1953 and didn't have the approval or consent of Native American tribes. According to the Yurok Tribe Police Chief, the law has taken away a tribe's ability, or at least in theory, you know, their sovereignty, to be able to have their own people have their own law enforcement and investigate crimes on the reservations and put that onto the state. 
The transfer of the jurisdiction from tribes to the state, however, didn't come with additional funding, which ultimately harms Native American victims of crime. Additionally, in California, Public Law 280 took away tribes' control of welfare, health, and education in addition to law enforcement. There are people in state law enforcement agencies who recognize that Public Law 280 is problematic and harmful. Humboldt County Sheriff William Hansel told CBS News Bay Area that the law is a roadblock to solving cases and is a more of a hindrance than a help. This largely has to do with the lack of trust that exists between Native Americans and state law enforcement. Sheriff Hansel said, there's no trust involved. Oftentimes, we can't even get our foot in the door to have an interview. There's also several bills that have been passed in California that are aimed at fixing the harm that Public Law 280 has caused. California State Assemblyman James Ramos, who is a member of the Serrano tribe and the first Native American man to be elected to California State Assembly, is largely responsible for these new bills. He sponsored Assembly Bill 3099 in 2020, which will provide special training for law enforcement on how to handle cases of missing and murdered Indigenous people. He also sponsored Assembly Bill 1314 in 2022. It's a bill that created the Feather Alert Program, a similar system to the Amber Alert system, but for missing Indigenous people in California. Most recently, in May 2023, Ramos sponsored Assembly Concurrent Resolution Number 25, which proposed the month of May to be Missing and Murdered Indigenous People Awareness Month in California. And it passed unanimously in both the State Assembly and the State Senate. As hinted at throughout this episode, Emily's case is part of a much larger problem in North America, that of missing and murdered Indigenous people, specifically women, girls, and two-spirit individuals. In addition to the bills that Assemblyman Ramos has passed, there are several federal laws that have been created in attempts to address the missing and murdered Indigenous women crisis in the United States. Savannah's act was signed into law in 2020 and is named after Savannah LaFontaine Graywin. We actually covered her case not too long ago. She was murdered in 2017 when she was eight months pregnant. She was a member of the Spirit Lake Nation of North Dakota. The law requires more training of law enforcement officers, increases outreach to tribes, and sets up a more rigid system of collecting data on missing and murdered Indigenous people. In 2021, the U.S. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland, a member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe, announced the creation of the Missing and Murdered Unit within the Bureau of Indian Affairs Office of Justice Services. This was in order to address the missing and murdered Indigenous people crisis. But bringing it back to Emily, according to KLCC, Emily's disappearance is one of five cases in 18 months of Native women gone missing or found murdered between California's Bay Area and the Oregon border. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention states that Indigenous women are murdered at a rate that is 10 times higher than the national average. Northern California, where Emily was from, has the highest rate of missing and murdered Indigenous people per capita in California. In December 2021, two months after Emily's disappearance, the Yurok tribe released an emergency declaration about the alarming rates of missing and murdered Indigenous people on the reservation and in the city of Arcata. The declaration powerfully stated, the national crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is rooted in colonialism and systemic violence, which has contributed to a failure of the legal system to protect Indigenous communities. It goes on to state, the intergenerational impacts of 170 years of violence, trafficking, and murder through missions, 
massacres, forced relocation, state-sanctioned indentured servitude, boarding schools, widespread removal of children from their families through the child welfare system, disproportionate incarceration, police violence, and high rates of gender violence are still playing out to this day and directly contribute to the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The declaration requested that additional resources be sent to the Yurok Reservation in order to help combat the growing epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women. The declaration also included several statistics, such as that 36% of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls cases in the state of California occurred within or near the Yurok Reservation. Additionally, half of California's missing and murdered Indigenous women cases lack charges or convictions, but have a known suspect. And since 2015, there has been an average of 15 missing and murdered Indigenous cases per year in California. In addition to the state of emergency, the Yurok tribe, in collaboration with the nonprofit Sovereign Bodies Institute, created Tukisku Sunewu Chek, which means I'll see you again in a good way in the Yurok language. The organization is designed to collect data on missing and murdered indigenous people in Northern California, and it's intended to use that data to create change in the justice system. In several news articles that accompanied the press release, it was stated that Emily's disappearance was a big motivation for the emergency declaration. KRCR also reported that between November and December of 2021, seven Yurok women were the victims of attempted human traffickers, but they were able to escape before they were abducted. Because Emily's disappearance is unsolved, we don't know if she was the victim of human trafficking or foul play. What we do know is that she was an indigenous woman who was desperately in need of help and who law enforcement and the mental health system failed. Police don't seem to have any leads on her disappearance, and Emily Risling is still missing. There is currently a $20,000 reward for any information leading to Emily Risling's safe return or to her location. Emily is 5'3", 140 pounds, and has brown hair and brown eyes. She was last seen near a bridge at the edge of the Yurik Reservation. If you have any information about Emily's whereabouts, you can contact the Hoopa Tribal Police at 503-625-4202. That's 503-625-4202. Make sure to follow us on all of our socials at the Murder Diaries pod. Until next time, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.